0: You have your Bibles this morning. I want to turn back to Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter twenty-three today. Uh, last week we began uh, a study. We kind of normally through our study in Proverbs we came across Proverbs chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-eight, which is a uh, incredible verse by itself. But it ties in with another proverb verse in twenty-three, and uh, we talked about twenty-two, twenty-eight last week, and now. We're going to talk about the other one today. And you remember last week we began a study on laying out these two incredible verses. If I could pick two verses, that probably would be the foundation that every Christian needs in their life. If they're ever, whatever they're going to try to do for God, it would be these two verses. And I know there's a lot of good verses in the Bible. I know there's a lot of good uh, principles in the Bible. But when it starts with Christianity, you have to start with a foundation. These two verses are the foundation of everything in the Bible and God and history and what he's doing. You remember I started the story, I started the message last week by telling you the tragic story of the World War II B-24 liberator, the Lady Be Good, that disappeared uh, over the Mediterranean in 1943 and 15 years later was found in the Libyan desert. And I walked you through that story for the whole purpose of telling you that that plane got lost and messed up and became a mystery for many, many, many years, all because the navigator missed a landmark. And I, I, I was building uh, upon the concept of how absolutely vital it is for you and for me as Christians to have landmarks in our lives. These two verses will be the common thread. It'll become the common thread that will pull the Bible, that will pull God, it will pull all history, and uh, and of course you as a Christian, together, uh, as God's plan, as it lays out through the Bible. And you remember last week, I told you that God has three distinct plans. They're all separate, but they're all connected. God has a plan for the universe. There's a reason why he created the universe. And of course, if you know anything about the universe, you know that there's billions and billions, probably countless trillions of universes out there uh, in the vastness of outer space. God had a plan for the universe. God has a plan for the earth, and then of course, God has a plan for your life and my life. They're all separate, but they're connected because you and me live on planet earth, and planet earth is in the universe. So they're all tied together. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 7, talking about out in the eternity future there for you and for me, it says that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. What an amazing verse. What a plan that God has. Sadly enough, most of God's people, the majority of God's people, go through their whole Christian life never understanding God's plan for the universe, never understanding why God created the earth, and certainly never understanding God's plan for their own life. And these two verses... Uh, Are found in Proverbs chapter 22 and 23. And these two verses will form for us the landmarks. The things that, two landmarks that you and I, as a child of God, must understand of what God is doing. Uh, And I told you last week, the Bible is a history book. The Bible's many things. Yeah, I know, it'll get you to heaven, the plan of salvation, I get all of that. But fundamentally, the Bible is a history book. And it's not a history book like all the other history books that's separate from them. All the other history books that you'll ever read will tell you down through history what man is doing. The Bible is not a record of the history of man. The Bible is a record of the history of what God is doing. You want to find out where He's at? Find the landmarks. You want to find God today? Get the landmarks. That's the key. And last week we looked at Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight. 28 remove not the ancient landmark which the fathers have set. And we saw that in an Old Testament, the landmark uh, which God does everything by will be the nation of Israel. We saw that. And if you, I don't know if you were breaking it down, but if you hadn't, we looked at seven, seven things came out of last week. First of all, uh, all history will flow through God's nation as he builds his kingdom through that particular nation, and the nation of Israel. The second thing we got out of last week is all history will be a cycle. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. And this is the great lesson that we miss in history. The third thing, God will bring uh, into existence the Gentile nations and allow them to exist. But for them to find God in the Old Testament and to find the true God, they had to go through the nation of Israel. And there was no exception to this. Everybody in the Old Testament that was a Gentile had to come through the nation of Israel. You'll see it in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, but she met Boaz, and she says the, the famous line that we always use in weddings, my pe- your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. What was she saying? She's saying, I'm a Moabite, but I want God, and to have God, I've got to become part of the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 3, verse 2, tells us that the oracles of God, the very words of God, was given to and through the nation of Israel. The fourth thing, salvation of mankind, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, will always be through this landmark. John chapter 4, verse 22 says that salvation is of the Jews. The fifth thing, all teachings in public schools, higher education, wherever you go. And many times in Christian education and in Bible colleges, uh, their teaching will always go against what I've just said to you about the nation of Israel being the landmark. The sixth thing, all teaching today contrary to the nation of Israel, what we call anti-Semitism. That would be the white supremacist groups or the Aryan Brotherhood or the Ku Klux Klan or the any anti-Jewish group that thinks there's a... Many, many people claim to be Christians and think that they have actually taken the place of the nation of Israel, and God is finished with the Jew, and the Jews over there in the promised land are not the real Jews that now they're among the Gentiles, and you are the true Israel. All of that teaching, all of that teaching, all of that teaching, the root of that teaching will be satanic. Revelation chapter 12 and 13. The seventh thing, at the end, God will use all the nations, as we saw last week, to bring His people back to God. And then he'll destroy those nations at the second coming of Christ. And today, we're going to look at our next landmark that's found in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 10, uh, where it says, Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields uh, of the fatherless. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for the Lord Jesus today, and we love You. And we'd ask You, Father, today to be with us, to give us the Word of God. Help us to see these truths. And uh, we just pray today that you'll open up our eyes and our hearts and allow us to see the reality of the way things are, not as they appear. And we pray, Father, that you'll give us clear understanding and clear insight through your Spirit into your Word. And help me to find the right words, to say the right things, that will help people see the truth. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, we're in the Old Testament, the landmark will be the nation of Israel. That will be the true Jews. And they're very traceable through history. In the New Testament, our landmark that we're going to follow when we get into the New Testament will be the true church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And finding this landmark and staying with it will keep us on track and keep us from, uh, from entering into, as the Bible says, the fields of the fatherless. Now, the fields of the fatherless in Proverbs here that we looked at today in 2310 will be being lost in history. It'll simply mean that you and I don't know where we come from. We don't have any roots. (coughs) We're orphans. We don't know who our Father is. And if certainly there ever was a time uh, that Christianity has lost its way and has went into the apostasy that all Christianity finds itself into, it would be today. Christianity today has from around 1970 or so through 2018 up through the rapture has lost completely its way and we clearly now are in the fields of the Fatherless. We believe the Bible, but we don't know why. We have favorite scriptures or passages and stories, but we couldn't explain them if our life depended on it. We say we're saved, but if you had to open up the Bible and show the process by which God saved you, you couldn't do it. That's the mess we're in today. Now, This is not going to be an easy message today. It's going to be a fun one for me. Maybe not so fun for you. You see, I'm a preacher. And a preacher has a right to preach on other preachers. And I'm going to be on all over them today. I've been in this business almost 50 years. I know I don't look that old, but I am. (laughs) One of the kids asked me a couple weeks ago, he says, "Uh, was you in the war? And I said, yes. And he asked me if it was the Civil War. And I slapped that kid. (laughs) He reminded me of a kid years ago in a church I was with that they, out in the lobby, they had this big plaque of all the soldiers from that church that had died in World War II and in Vietnam. And there were like 30 or 40 people on it. And a little bus kid come up to me and he says, and he'd never been to church before, and he says he's looking at it like this. And I says, I said, why aren't you in Sunday school? And he says, oh, I'm going, mister. He says, this is great. He says, who are all these people? And I said, oh, these are guys who died in the service. He looks at me and said, the morning service or the evening service? I'm making you laugh now because I'm going to hit you with a Billy Jack here in just a few moments. You know, in the Bible... There's seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. And I've given them to you before. When you let somebody take the Bible from you, and you don't have the complete, absolute, perfect Word of God anymore, you lose seven particular things. And unfortunately, those seven things are the real base that everything in Christianity is built on. And I lived through this period of time. I, I, I was just gotten saved, uh, gotten right with God back in the, uh, in the 1970s, in the early 70s, and I, I, I actually watched this transpire. So I know what I'm talking about. I'm not, I didn't get this from somebody's book. I lived through it. I saw it. I was in the ministry during these things that happened. I talked to the guys. Now the New Testament church, by losing sight of the landmark. Because they lost the Bible, they've fallen completely into apostasy today. The book of Colossians is an incredible book. Paul writes the seven churches. In the book of Revelation, in a moment, you're going to see where John writes the seven churches. Most people don't know this, but those seven churches that Paul writes to and the seven that John writes to, they match up. And when you get into the book of Colossia, you'll find that the book of Colossia lines up with the Laodicean church period, the worst church period in the history of the New Testament church. And the book of Colossians mentions Laodicea in it five times. If you know your geography, uh, Laodicea was just like 11 miles south of Colossia. And uh, we find in this great book that this book represents exactly where we're at today. And each chapter, there's only four chapters in it, but each chapter lays out and shows you uh, what the issue is. In chapter one of the book of Colossians, he goes through and redefines who Christ is again. He talks about what he is, what he's done, what he means to us. Why does he do that? Because the Laodicean church has lost that concept. In chapter two, he tells us what has replaced the Bible today, what has replaced New Testament Christianity, the church of Jesus Christ, and he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and, dece- and deceit and the traditions of men and at the rudiments of the world. And that that is what has replaced it. Philosophy, vain deceit, the rudiments of the world. And then in chapter 3 and 4, two great chapters that tell us as a New Testament Christian who has the landmark, as a New Testament Christian who understands what the issue is, what do I do? How do I, what's my response to it? And like the crew of the Lady Be Good that we talked about last week, and I hope, how many of you Googled that story this week? Anybody? Okay, well, I'm glad one of you did. That's good. (laughs) I know it's been a busy week. You probably didn't have time to read your Bible either. I'll be coming down your road and you're knocking on your door in just a moment. But like the crew of the Lady Be Good last week, God's people are lost in the desert. They're dying spiritually. They're in a hostile environment that's called Christianity. That ought to be the place where you have the peace of God, that you get answers to your problems. God's people have more problems today than the unsaved world does. And the tragedy is, and this is hard for some people, is the majority of churches today and the pastor's people have lost their way. Uh, when I say what I'm about to say, it infuriates people. They get upset with me all the time. And what I'm about to say is probably one of the most unpopular things anybody can say. I can't help that. It's true. And when I'm done this morning with this, hopefully if you have an IQ above subplant plant life, you'll be able to see what I'm saying is true. And, uh, you know, uh, all across this country today, they're holding a Sunday church service in churches that claim to be Christian but they're using the devil's Bible. Now you just hang with me, don't. I see your blood vessels popping on your forehead here. Hang on. How many nurses we have here today? Put your hand up. I need to know where you're at. Where, where, I know. who. Yeah. You're a nurse? Yeah, you're a nurse. Yeah. All the nurses gone today? Where's, where are they at? Oh, we have one back here. Where's the other one down? One over here. What? One, one, one over here. Good. Good. Keep an eye on the crowd. Somebody falls out and has a heart attack because of what I say. Let him go. Let him die. Let him go home to be with the Lord. (laughs) I'm kidding! Give him mouth to mouth. It's hard to believe. I mean, you and I may go to a church that exalts the devil's Bible to the same level of God's Word. But when you know your Bible in places like Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, the Holy Spirit of God will not. And that same majority of God's people that I said will get infuriated with me of making that kind of statement. You know why they will? Because they're orphans. They're living in the fields of the fatherless. They have no roots. They have no depth to them. They're just fooling around with the Bible. And and they have drank the Kool-Aid that the churches are putting out today. They've drank in the Kool-Aid that God's Word isn't as powerful as it was all down through history. They've drank the Kool-Aid that the pastor put out or Bible colleges put out that you cannot have a perfect, absolute Word of God that is every Word that God wants you to have without error that you can trust your soul on. Now, I believe that. What's wrong with that? You act, look at me like there's something wrong with what I just said. You know why? Because you live in a Christian world that believes that God didn't know what he was talking about. In my Christian world, I know what he was talking about. And he wrote it down for me. How in the world is God going to judge you someday, saved or lost, if the Bible has mistakes in it? You'll just point out the mistakes and you'll be off the hook. There's only one perfect thing in this world, folks. There's only one perfect, pure thing in this world, and a real child of God will find it, they'll fall in love with it, and it'll be their most cherished possession. It is the Word of God that God has given you. You don't have that, you don't have anything. I don't love this world, there's nothing in this world, oh, I have a good time, I enjoy things, I enjoy doing things with you, but at the end of the day, this world is not my friend, and it's not going to be your friend. The only friend you ever had is the one who died for you on that cross, loved you, and then he wrote you a love letter to you. I'm lost now, so here it comes. And the truth is, all of us. Take all of us, and alongside real Bible-believing Christian down through history that paid a price with their life and shed their blood, that over a book, you and I are a joke. We're a joke. Your biggest problem today or next week will be, somebody talked about me. I didn't like the preachers, what he said. He didn't shake my hand. Back in the day, what they were worried about is are they going to come and take my little baby boy or girl and throw them to the pigs and let them eat them in front of me and try to make me deny Christ. little outbalanced in the problem, don't you think? And people get mad when I talk like this. They get mad. They get upset. You know why? Because deep down inside they know they couldn't defend what they believe if their life defended on it. Somebody had put the old Billy Jack move on them so fast they wouldn't know what hit you. Not only do they not know what to believe, but what they do believe they couldn't explain it to their life dependent on it. You bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Somebody took your Bible from you. Somebody relegated your Bible that is the perfect pure Word of God to make it just like any other book at Barnes and Noble. And this is why, now I'm going to get, I'm preaching to pastors today. There's no pastors here, but one, but he's on my side. <coughs> this is why we live in a day and age today where pastors of Baptist churches are taking Baptist off their name. And you went right along with it. You were in a church, he get up and he said, We're going to take Baptist off our name. And everybody said, oh, that's wonderful. Everybody else says, and you went right along with it. You never stood up and said, are you out of your mind? You never stood up and said, I'm out of here. You went right along with it. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Now, this message, among other things, and laying out the landmark, I want you to understand. I'm going on the record here. This message for time and eternity will be the reason why we are a Baptist church, or we will stay a Baptist church, and no matter who says, Well, I'm not going to a Baptist church. Praise the Lord. I'm sure in the Old Testament there were Hittites and Amalekites and Jebusites and Canaanites that said, I'm not going to that Jew uh, to find God. And God said, that's fine. Do your own deal. It doesn't change the fact. I've had people say, well, those crazy Baptists. Well, yeah, those crazy evangelicals, too. Those crazy charismatics. Those crazy Bible. Everybody's got crazies. Is there any family in here that you know right now that you've got a crazy uncle or aunt someplace in your family? Anybody? See, you're laughing. You know it's true. Yeah. You got several. I got several. We all go to a family reunion and it's a joke. Oh, you come so-and-so and he's out there, you know. Or your crazy aunt will go off on something and you'll just all look at each other and say, oh, okay, here we go. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you leave the family? Do you change your name? You all got crazy people in our families. You're going to have crazy Baptist churches. Now People tell me all the time, well, I had a bad experience in church, and I'm not going back to church because I had a bad experience. I've had parents tell me, well, my boy or my daughter won't ever go to a church because they had a bad experience in a church one time, and they're just not going back. People are so stupid. I mean, it's ridiculous. I ate at a restaurant one time and got food poisoning. Bad, threw up for weeks, months, still have it. I'm going to run back here and throw up again in just a moment. Ate at a restaurant, and I know what it was. Hey, don't you know, this is a little secret, not that in the Bible, but it's worth knowing. When you get something that you eat makes you sick, when you throw up, that'll be the taste that comes into your mouth, and you know what it was. Now, that may be gross. I know it's gross. I know, but it's true. You were shaking your head before I even said it, because you knew it was true. And I know what I ate. I ate. I ate fish with tartar sauce. And the tartar sauce had probably been outdated about 20 years ago. And I was so sick. And I got to tell you, it turned me off with tartar sauce for a long time. But I still go out to eat. In other words, just because I had one bad experience in one restaurant, I'm never going to not eat out again. How, what's your mindset? How, how ridiculously stupid? Well, I had a bad experience at church, so I'm not going to go. Yeah, but you know what? You can, you, you, you can go get a bad restaurant, and you'll go back out and eat all the time. People are nuts. Absolutely nuts. And I'm telling you, you ever seen a bad movie? Those of you that go with the ones that I pick, you tell me all the time they're terrible. <laughs> Nothing crushes my spirit more than me putting together an Operation 100. We all going out to the movie, and you come out and say, I say, and I'm excited. How do you like it? Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> go be a Methodist. <clears throat> I guess you guys went out to a movie the other night after Bible study. And yeah. yeah, you didn't invite me. <laughs> I know why. I'm no fun. And it wasn't my kind of movie. You see, you go to these He Man movies like Captain America, yeah. Thor, and all that. See, I don't, yeah, 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 I don't go to those. I'm much more spiritual than you. I know they're the guys in Genesis chapter 6. Can I get a woo now? Years ago, a pastor by the name of Reverend Graves from Ashland, Kentucky, he wrote a series of books that taught that there were certain prominent landmarks that the Baptist Church had, and that they and they held to all down through history. And he said it sets them apart, different from all the other churches. He was a pastor, and he called his church. Landmark Baptist Church. I think that's a great name. There's only three names that I would pick from the church. Landmark Baptist, Old Paz, Jeremiah 6, and Antioch Baptist, Acts chapter 11. All the other stuff is fluff. Now, if you go to a Baptist church and they call it Grace Baptist or, or Heavenly Way Baptist or, you know... Uh, whatever, uh, don't get mad at me. Uh, it, I'm just telling you, I just, I, I told you already, I'm just not good. You should have turned this off a while ago. <laughs> he says that they were Baptist distinctive. When I was trained in the Bible many, many, many years ago, almost 50 years ago, this is what I was taught 10 or 12, I don't know, fundamental Baptist teachings that the Baptists have held all the way down through church history, all the way back to Acts chapter 11 where they're first called Christians in Antioch. I like the word Baptist. As a Baptist, I'm the only group, i am the only group in the history of the world that was given their name by their arch enemy of a doctrine that we held to. Back in the 13 and 1400s, the Roman Catholic Church was hauling the mail through Europe and, and the Dark Ages was in effect. And there was a group, we're going to see them in a moment. There was a group of people that, that the Catholic Catholic Church was teaching you had to baptize your babies to go to heaven. And a group of Bible believers says, you're out of your mind. And there were thousands of them that took their stand. You know what they called them? Anna Pedro Baptist. That's Latin. Anna, again, Pedro, child, Baptist, baptizer. We got our name because we refused to deny the blood of Jesus Christ for salvation for adults, would not baptize our children, and our enemies called us Anna Pedro Baptist. A little bit later on, by the time we get into the 1500s, they dropped the Pedro, and they called us Anna. And in about the 1600s, now it's called Baptist. Rome gave Christianity the two defining names. In Acts chapter 11, they're first called Christians. We got that term from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had over 600 gods. New Testament Bible-believing Christianity only had one god. They looked at that as a poor man's religion. They made fun of us because they had 600 and they only had one. And we talked about the one that we had living inside us. So they sarcastically called us Christians which means you're a little Christ. You know, that's exactly what you are today. If you're saved this morning, Christ is living inside you. That's a doctrinal statement. And the greatest enemy that Christianity ever had gave us two defining names, Christian and Baptist. And if you think I'm taking that off of this church, you're out of your mind. You're nuts. You've been smoking something. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. Now I, I, I need to stop here for a moment and if you haven't already picked this up, this message is going to be very condescending. This is not going to be for the weak jellyfish need spineless Christians who, you know, want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It, it is not going to play with you. So if you're listening on the YouTube or you're going to listen to this on tape down the line play, my advice to you is to shut it off right now. Go over here and there's plenty of places you can go where you can hear whatever you want to hear. I'm preaching this message by design. That's because I have the utmost disrespect and disdain for pastors, churches who play church with the devil's Bible. Who take their people that God has given him and don't, and then steal the word of God from them and don't give them the truth. Now I'll tell you, if you ain't figured it out, I'm old school. I was trained by the guys that were old schooler than me. I preached what I believe and preached what I preached for almost 50 years. I've never changed one thing in my stand. I've never, I've never come to the place, well, I don't believe that anymore. Uh, I, 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 I would hope I got better in my preaching, but I've probably gotten worse. But the bottom line is, I still believe the same things. Amen. There's a book out you ought to read about the Marine Corps in World War II, comparing it to the Marine Corps today. It's called The Old Breed. Things were different back then. Things meant different back then. And when I grew up in Christianity 50-some years ago, things were different. I'm old school. I still believe the Bible is the Word of God. I still believe it will fix every problem you got. If you look around here and go on our website, we don't have a staff psychologist. We don't have a Christian therapist. We got the greatest book the world has ever seen. We got the Holy Spirit of God living inside us, and you got a preacher that'll preach the hell out of you when you need it. I'm just getting warmed up. (laughs) I'll follow the old paths of Jeremiah chapter six, verse sixteen, and I'll stay with the old and the ancient landmark, where last week I showed you the ancient landmark was the nation of Israel was broken down into eight sections. This week I'm going to show you the landmark of the New Testament church that breaks down into seven. And it makes it real easy. you find them in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And know this, very important. As you move through these seven stages of the true church of Jesus Christ, you will also find a false church with a false Bible following right on its heels. When we look at the landmark and we study the landmark and we identify the landmark, we find two clear lines of churches and Bibles, the gods and the devils. So when I'm talking about what I'm saying about the devil's church and the devil's Bible, I'm not just some raving old senile fanatic, kind of, but I know what I'm talking about. And staying on the old path with the old landmark, will get you'll get to see where God's people down through history, traded the church of Jesus Christ and His Word. Yes, that's right. Traded the church of Jesus Christ and His Word for the devil's church and his Bible. I'm going to show it to you today. And most of God's people have no clue. They couldn't defend their position of their church or where they believed that you put a gun to their head. Now... New Testament Christianity will start, as I said, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Now, I'm going to walk you through this. That's all. Reach next person to hold their hand. We're going on a walk together. They're first called Christians in Antioch. Antioch is the model church for us. We pattern our church after that church. That's a pattern in the Bible. That's where the landmark is set. And in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, it tells us that the next 2,000 years of church history, we've got to follow that landmark and God... For makes it easy for us by breaking it down into seven historical sections. Now I'm going to give them to you very briefly. I'm going to give you the earth out in Revelation. I'm going to give you the time frame in history, and we're going to move through these. So do not raise your hand uh, and say can you repeat that because I'm going to think you need to go to the bathroom and it's right out there and to the right. Church at Ephesus found in Revelation chapter 2.1. Now, if you want to put this time period approximately in history, it would start around around uh, 60 A.D., around Acts chapter 20, and run up for around 200 A.D. This is a really good church. Revelation 2.2 says about this church in history that it tried the church. It, it, it found people who claimed they were apostles, and the Bible says that found out that they were liars. This was a good, strong church that tried the spirits, and laid people out when they were not doing what's right. This church was started by Paul and and probably his converts. Uh, We have in this time period what we call in history the Apostolic Church Fathers. A couple of them, like Ignatius or Polygarp, were good, solid men. They loved the Lord. But we begin to see, during this first 200 years, false teaching begin to come into play. We see it originate down in Alexandria, Egypt, and spread up into Christianity. We now begin to see that there's not just four Gospels, but everybody's got a Gospel. Today, as we speak, there's probably 80 Gospels. There's only four of them that are of God. The rest of them are the devil. But you'll find people all the time. I know a church one time, the pastor said, Well, I don't think Judas was such a bad guy. I mean, he wrote a Gospel. I think he was just misunderstood. John John, John, uh, in John chapter 8, verse uh, uh, 40, uh, someplace in there, it's in John 8. I'm all up higher. It's in the Bible, someplace. Bible, John, he's a devil. He's a devil. Misunderstood. Yeah, you get those from me. I don't want to pop my screws in my back. I mean, come on. We begin to see it creep in. There's 80. The devil flooded. He, he flooded with counterfeit manuscripts. He flooded it with, from, with the pagan philosophers. And we see in Revelation chapter 2, 4, the beginning of the problem where he says about this church, and by the way, Ephesus means fully purposed. It was a church that had everything it needed to do the job. And yet we see in Revelation 2, 4 that we see the first problem where he says, you left your first love. I have one thing against thee, you. you left your first love. That's the word of God we see the first deviation of false teaching and people leaving the Word of God. Not 200 years after Christ showed up. The next one, Smyrnia. Smyrnia means bitterness and death, Revelation 2.8. In time period, it'll pick up where Ephesus ends, around 200, it runs up to about 325. The church started to go, (coughs) uh, you know, is severely persecuted by the uh, pagan Roman Empire. This will be the time in history where you have the ten official uh, persecutions of Rome against God's people. Uh, uh, Romans 2.9 says that there, somebody's coming in claiming to be Jews, and they're not. Uh, this will take us up to the Council of Nicaea with the Emperor Constantine in history, and we'll find here the anti nicaean Fathers, the ones right before uh, the Council of Nicaea. And with the first two churches here, Ephesus and Smyrna, we begin to see the development of two lines. Two Bibles, two churches. We move into the third one, Pergamos. Pergamos means (coughs) much marriage. Three twenty-five to five hundred A.D. in history, found in Revelation chapter two, verse twelve. This will be the rise of Constantine, the Roman emperor, who's given credit, by the way, in history of. Ending the pagan Roman Empire and bringing in uh, Christianity to Rome, and actually with Constantine uh, starts the Roman Catholic Church. He calls the Council of Nicaea and uh, <coughs> they uh, uh, have a meeting there, and uh, they sets up the rules for for uh, uh, Christianity. And uh, he goes back to Byzantium, which is modern day Constantinople, uh, Istanbul to you. And the whole thing was a lot of bull, but anyway, it's a thing where. When he goes back, he leaves a a bishop on the throne in Rome, and we got the first pope. So now we start to see that pagan Rome, who used to kill Christians, have now overnight come into papal Rome, and now it's Christian. And there's no more Christian than my two labs. In fact, my two labs are probably more Christian. And we see see in history uh, the official start of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church will tell you that they're the oldest church, that they've been around forever. And people drink that Kool-Aid like it's, uh, like it's, uh, it's true. And of course, anybody who knows the landmarks, anybody who knows the House of History knows that the Roman Catholic Church didn't start to 400 A.D., 400 years after Christ. But that's fact. And you say, you, you, you're just, you're just no, no, no. You could go to any library in any city in any town in this country and find that information. Somebody said one time, well, wow, how how do you find all this stuff? It's a conspiracy. They hide it in books. (laughs) The fourth one's Thyatira. Thyatira means odor of affliction. Time frame, 500, 1,000. First part of the Dark Ages. Revelation 2.18. Now where in Pergamos, the pagan Roman Empire murdered all the Christians. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will murder all the Christians because they won't become Catholic. This is the start of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages run from 500 to 1500. The worst period of time (coughs) in all the history of the world. The world is in total darkness. If you had a Forerunner of the King James Bible back in the Dark Ages, and you were found by the Roman Catholic Church to have that versus their Bible. We got two now because we got two churches. The pun- punishment for having the Bible that you have in your lap, even though it wasn't in effect yet, but the forerunner of it was capital punishment. You were killed. You were killed. Somebody said one time, we need to have, we need to have a, a, a knockdown of all the nuclear weapons. The most, the most dangerous thing in the world is, a, is an atom bomb. How stupid that is. No, it's from history. The most dangerous thing in the world is the Word of God. I don't know any nation that will outlaw atomic bomb, but I know a bunch of them that outlaw the Bible. So you got Thyatira. Worst period. The only light during this period of time are the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men and women just like you who believed the book, believed God, and in spite of the opposition, in spite of the oppression, in spite of the persecution, took their stand. You can read about them in Fox's Book of Martyrs or tortured for their faith. Two great, great, great books that you ought to read. The next one, number five, is Sardis. This will be Revelation 3, one. Sardis means red ones read in the sense of covered in blood. This will bring us up to 1,000 to the end of the Dark Ages in 1500. This will be the time of the Crusades. This will be the time of Robin Hood, you know, Camelot, all the fun things that we like to watch, you know, and all the things, men in tights. <laughs> Not my favorite movie, but maybe you enjoyed it. <laughs> You'll find that during this time, the first English translation, get this, The first English translation in around 1200 A.D., which is a forerunner of the Bible you have in your lap right now, the King James 1611 authorized version, Wycliffe put out his first English translation in 1200 A.D. And the Roman Catholic Church went ballistic. We find during this time the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and the history of the Pope, which was written by the Catholic historians, leads us up to the Reformation with Martin Luther, which brings us into the next one, to Philadelphia, Revelation 3-7, which is about, in our time frame, 1600 to 1900. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Without a doubt, Philadelphia is the greatest period of church history the world has ever seen. It's a time when three quarters of the world were one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The two greatest nations on the face of this planet that had a King James 1611 authorized version was England and the United States. And during those 400 years, the King James Bible reigned supreme. You only had two Bibles back then you had the Roman Catholic Douay Reims, and you had the King James 1611 authorized version. You had great preachers, you had great missionaries, you had the whole world bathed in the light of the Word of God. Oh, uh, and I wish I had time to go into great detail. I'm just giving you a small capsule. If you ever want to get it, go to the website, or we're going to have five or six volumes on church history in a book, but you can get it on the website. I took about 500 hours and laid this stuff out. Went into every detail. Can't do it today. But my point is to show you the landmark. This is called in Revelation chapter 3, 8, the church of the open door. You know why? Because the Bible says in that passage that because they kept his word that God opened the door, no man can shut it. And the King James Bible went around the world several times. Then around 1900 or so, we move into the last, the seventh period, Revelation three fourteen, which is called Laodicea. And this will run from about 1900 up to the time that you and I live up to the rapture of the church. And this is the final apostasy of the church going back to Rome. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where he said in Revelation 3 8, the lay of the Philadelphian church was the church of the open door. Now this church, Revelation 3.20, church of the closed door. A fake, godless Christianity and church with the devil's Bible that pretends to be of God. What a mess. Now, within these seven periods, you will find your roots as Baptists you'll find your roots as a Bible believer, and also you'll find those Baptist distinctives that we hold to, the doctrines, and we believe today that they believed all out through history by the Bible-believing groups. Remember, a church, a church, the real true church of Jesus Christ will not be uh, defined by, by, what, uh, by what it looks like. It won't be defined by how big the congregation is or how nice the choir sounds. The real church of Jesus Christ, the true church, will always be defined by what they believe. And when you don't know what the Baptist distinctives are of what was held back through history, through the landmark, then you can see your problem. 99% of God's people today are in the fields of the fatherless. Now, let me walk you through this, now that I've given you a little overview. Here's, here's what we got. When Christianity got started in Acts chapter 11, church at Ephesus, there were men who were, there were, men who were born again, Many were saved by Paul or some of his converts, and they were men who, who, were, who loved the Lord and loved the Word of God. And this will be the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and as it moves on. And, and as we see now, we start to see the first deviation of the Word of God, and begin bad teaching began to creep in. And the true men that held the line and believed the book and knew that they were the true church said, you're out of your mind. The doctrine of infant baptism had come up. The doctrine of, of, of all kinds of heresies that began to creep in. And they simply said, absolutely not. The whole world of Christianity back then coming out of Alexander was shifting to this blasé, gray mesh mush that we call Christianity today. And these men would not do it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 calls them the overcomers. There were men like Montanus Men like Novatius, the men like uh, Dante, men like Manet, men like Plagius. And of course, uh, uh, they took a stand and they said, our church is not going that way. We're going to stick with the book. I don't want any of this junk that you're bringing up from Alexandria. There's a bunch of philosophers down there that believe everything about the Bible is false. We're not going with that. And when they took their stand against what was forming up as the, the mainstream of Christianity, The people that followed them were called by the leader that they followed. The Mont- Montanist, his group was called the Montanists. Novatius, his group was called Novatians. Dante, his group was called the Donatists. Mane, his group was called the Manichians. And now, the new order of Christianity, the false church, labeled these men as heretics. Because the false teaching beginning to develop under the devil was beginning to move through and anybody who stood for the truth were being persecuted by the hierarchy of all the other teaching and so they labeled these people after the men that they followed. This early group, this is just a few, there were a bunch of them, were called by the man they followed as a definitive statement on what they believed. It was a lot like you being called a Rachmanite. Back in J. Frank Norris's day, they called his followers Norrisites. These men were pastors who would not compromise with the corrupt teaching that was coming out of Alexandria, and they stayed away from it, and they stayed with the book, they stayed with what they knew to be true, and they preached it. Now, stay with me. Stay with the landmark. As Christianity gets larger and moves across Asia and into Europe, the true church was moving forward and the false church was hot on its heels. In 325, I've already told you the Pergamos, we saw the false new beginning of the Roman Catholic Church under the Emperor Constantine. And we see the start now of Roman Catholicism. We see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, it says that their doctrine now is established. And the Bible says in Revelation 313 that in this church Satan has a seat. I don't know why you can't read. Now, this next group here are, uh, picks up around 500 to 1,500. This will be Thyatira and Sardis into the Dark Ages. Now, there are so many Christians all over the place that they can't, they can't, they can't label them by the guy that they're following. Before, it was easy because they were small bands of churches and groups that took their... St- now, by this time, four or 500 years later, they're all over the place. And the false church, the Roman Catholic Church, is having a tough time with them. So now in history, they don't call them after the guy that they're following anymore. Now they'll call them in history after the geographical location by which they lived. These are all Bible believers that believe you get saved by the blood. They all believe a King James 16 11 is the authorized version of the absolute Word of God. And they all believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the great whore of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Read it! Go to the public library. Get a book on it. You have, now you have, they're called Paterinians uh, out of North Italy and southern France. Now they're called Bogomiles out of Eastern Europe. In France, they're called Catharii. They're called the Valdois in Italy or the Lombards up in North Italy. They're called Albigensians in Southern France and Waldensians in the Piedmont Valley of Italy. They're called Huguenots in Southern France. They're called Hussites in what used to be Czechoslovakia. They're called the Sandalates in Italy. And they're called the Poliseans after the fact that they wouldn't follow the teachings of Peter that the Roman Catholic Church. They said, what we believe, church follows what Paul writes. You see, they couldn't call them anymore by the guy, their father, too many. So now they call them by the geographical location in which they live. Now, I'm going to tell you this. When you read history and you get a history book, you'll find, you'll find that these guys are labeled by historians as cults, uh, people who believed all kinds of weird things, sex. Some of the worst things are said about them. You know why that is? Because during the Oxford movement, the Roman Catholic Church, through the Jesuits, rewrote history and rewrote all that stuff. And the very enemies of the one who wrote their history. It'll be a lot like 100 years from now if somebody who doesn't like us writes our history. That'll be worth reading. Now as time moves on, we find the end of the Sardis moving into the Philadelphia, 1500-1600. Now the Bible-believing groups are so strong and they're everywhere. I mean, they've all linked together now. Europe is filled with them. Bible-believing men and women are out there preaching and passing out and telling the story, the gospel, and just putting it out there. And Rome couldn't kill them fast enough to stop them. So now they give them a name not based on the man that they followed. Stay with me. Not based on the man that they followed. Not based on the geographical location where they live. Now they give them a name based on the number one doctrine that they had against them. Now they called them Anna Pedro Baptist. Because these guys all across Europe, Asia Minor, they were taking their stand that if you baptize a baby for salvation, it's going to go straight to hell when it dies. They were teaching and preaching that salvation is only for adults through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Exactly what we teach. Later on, they're called Anabaptist. Then they were called just Baptists. And the Baptist Church, the true one, the ones that are still around, very few today, will represent the line of the Bible believers and the landmark going all the way back through history to Acts chapter 11 if they understand the landmark and follow what the church has always believed. When we started our church 15, 16 years ago, I made no bones about it. We would be as close to the church at Antioch that we could possibly get to. We believe the King James Bible is the absolute perfect Word of God. We just simply believe that. We believe that uh, all other Bibles are satanically inspired, including the New King James Bible. you got a lot of idiot idiot stick pastors out there that say, well, we don't use the King James. We use the New King James. The New King James is satanic. It's got over 10,000 changes. Hey, don't tell me. It came out with Thomas Nelson in 1979. You know where I was in 1979? I was here in Kansas City. I knew the pastors that Thomas Nelson said, we want to put out a new translation. We're just going to take the old King James Bible, which everybody loves, and make it better. And all the pastors said, okay, nothing wrong with that. And then they went around to all the big Baptist preachers, 20 or 30 of them. And they said, would you sit on a board to make sure that this is acceptable? And they all said, yes. I knew all of those pastors. I was very good friends with several of them. Every one of those pastors got off the revision committee. They said, we want no part of it. I asked them why. They said, it became obvious enough that they weren't just updating the archaic words. They were changing the text to bring it in line with a corrupt Roman Catholic text out of Alexandria. And it made over 10,000 textual changes. Will you say, well, in our church we use the New James Bible. It's not as bad as the other. Let me ask you a question, Pastor. In your church, how much error in a Bible do you willing to allow? Yeah. That's the question. Well, we, uh, we uh, no, no, no. You don't know the issue. You're too busy mixing the Kool-Aid for all your people. The only one dumber in your church is the people who listen to you who you try to say, well, the New King James Bible is okay. No, 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 no. The New King James all the Baptists got off of it because of where they were going with it, and they sold you a bill of goods. And you stand in the pulpit every Sunday morning preaching the Word of God out of a Bible that the devil has sown his poppy seed through. A little sprinkly on your Bible donut. I didn't have that in my notes. I just thought of that. That was kind of good. little sprinklers on your donut. We believe in separation from the world. We still do. We don't think Christians out of drink. We don't think Christians out of social drink, out of kind of social drink. I had a church one time. I had a buddy that had a drinking problem and they his, his, they sent him to that church. They had a psychologist. And he says, well, he says, you know what? Drinking comes in three phases. We have recreational drinking, serious drinking, and then addiction to drinking. As long as you stay in the first one, you're okay. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Your old sin nature will never let you stay in the first one. Because there's always another party to go to. You say, well, I'm just going to have a beer or two, and somebody will bring out Captain Morgan, and there you go. (laughs) Don't tell me. You cannot tell your flesh when enough is enough. You can't tell your flesh. I'm just going to have a little bit. You can't tell your flesh. I'll tell you what. When they, when they, when they legalized marijuana in Missouri, and you know they're going to, you're going to see a revolution in churches now that it's okay because it's not against the law. You know how I know that? Because some of you are already smoking it, and it is against the law. And now it's going to be, Jesus was high on a mountain. (laughs) Don't tell me. We still believe that if you're a Christian, you ought to be separated from the world. You ought to be different from the world. What is going to draw people to Christ if you're just like the world? You ought to be different than the world. You ought to smell different. You ought to look different. You ought to act different. And we still believe that, that that salvation is by the blood of Christ. We still hold to the, to the Bible. As 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says, the doctrine is the most important thing. He says all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We just follow the pattern. That Bible is profitable. Doctrine. You know what doctrine is? Doctrine will tell you what's right. You know what Christianity doesn't have today? They don't have a guideline of what's right anymore. And then it says reproof. Not only will the Bible tell you what's right, but then it'll tell you what's wrong. Then it says correction. Not only will it tell you what's right, it'll tell you what's wrong. Now it'll tell you how to fix it. And then it says, instruction in righteousness. Not only will it tell you what's right and wrong and how to fix it, now it'll tell you how to keep it fixed. We hold to the teaching that the books of the Bible, all 66 of them, are sacred. And were given to us by God for us to live our lives by, to raise our families by, and to live our own personal relationship with Him by. We also believe that all down through history... The Christian church, the church, wasn't for everybody. Neither will this one be. We're built on truth. And there's very few people out there today that want the truth. Stay with me. Follow the landmarks here. The Reformation comes under Martin Luther. Europe is now landlocked. So the pilgrims show up. They're escaping religious persecution from Rome. So they come over. And and following them are thousands of Bible believers who want a place where they can teach the Bible, raise their family, read their Bible, have their Bible without their door being kicked down at 3 o'clock in the morning and being tortured. They're Dutch Baptists. They're German Baptists. They're English Baptists. The first two Baptist churches in America were founded in 1637 and 1638 by two men in Rhode Island, both pastors, one was John Clark and one was Roger Williams. John Clark and Roger Williams were from Waldensian stock, right on the line. The next hundred years, we see the Baptists spread out through the Eastern seaboard and through America like butter on popcorn. But then apostasy begins to set in. And in 1900, the three major denominations the Southern Baptist Convention, GRB, the American Baptist all go into apostasy. What did God do? God does what He always did. He raised up out of the Southern Baptist Church a man by the name of J. Frank Norris. The Texas tornado. He raised up a man who took on every Baptist theological seminary in this planet and said, we are going to stick with the Word of God. And boy, did he take them on. Now get this. I want you to understand. Landmarks. Get this. Get this. This church. Me. We are the great-grandchild of J. Frank Norris. My pastor back in Canton, Canton Baptist Temple, Dr. Harold Henniger, was one of Norris's boys. They sent me out here to Kansas City, ordained me, and sent me out to preach the gospel and build a church in 1976. He was one of J. Frank Norris's young men. We have stayed with the landmark. We are on the right line. We're right where we're supposed to be. When again in 1970 and 80, 90, up to today, the Baptist churches lost their way, got caught up in higher education and lost the power, the truth. And the leadership went south. And neo-evangelism came in and, and destroyed what was left of it. God raised up another guy. His name was Dr. Peter S. Ruckman. And what J. Nack Frank Norris did back in the 20s and the 30s, Dr. Ruckman did back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Now, it doesn't matter to me what you think about him. It doesn't matter to me if you even like him. But I will tell you this. You wouldn't have a Bible this morning that you could call your own without those two guys. We'd all be in the fields of the fathers. Why? Because there was two little guys that would stand up and say, We're going to take our stand! Now, I don't know about you. That bothers me that at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to have to stand alongside of those guys. Now, maybe that doesn't bother you. These guys stayed with the old landmark so you and I could have it. And what do we do with it? These men paid the price along with thousands of others so you and I could have a Bible. My personal heritage in life, my personal line going back through the Bible, right on the landmark. Two of the greatest men that helped Christianity from going into apostasy. J. Frank Norris, my former pastor, and Pete Ruckman taught and trained my father in the Lord, Mel Sabaka. I'm on the right line. I'm not sure what line you're on, but I'm on the right one. And that's why I'm not changing. I know where the landmark is. I know what it means. And all of this is lost today. It's gone. Swallowed up in the idea of the latest in church age that churches today are to be rich, increased with goods, had need of nothing. And the Bible says in Revelation 3.17, And knowest not that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In this church we will stay with the two landmarks that God has provided for us. We will not lose our way. We will not forsake our heritage, our roots. We will not uh, forget uh, where we've come from. We will not forget the price that was paid. And as far, and from this pulpit, I will never, absolutely never will forget that. And as long as I have breath to preach, I'll not let you forget it. And I'll never let us forget that we, through history, are Bible believers, and we will have our enemies too. We will have our enemies too. We'll have enemies that are within the body of Christ and we'll have enemies without. It just goes with history. People will hate us, lie about us, call us a cult, laugh and make fun of us. That's okay. But just know and make note of one thing. They'll always do it behind our back or from the safety of a computer keyboard. They'll never challenge you face to face. They'll never challenge us face-to-face in an open forum because the answer is simple and obviously Billy Jack is waiting for them. And some of you men and some of you ladies and some of our high school kids would plant your left foot up around their head so fast they wouldn't know what hit them because there are no here who know the bible i have made it my life mission to take every young man every young lady that want every mom and dad every couple every every older person that wanted to have the bible i have made it my life mission that you could have it why so you could stand and take your stand Now, just as within the nation of Israel, the ancient landmark, all nations, false religions were against them and tried to stop them. And they tried to stop them by erasing the landmark from history. So, when the church aids today, the enemy of God, the true church, the enemy of the true church will try to erase, and they'll use Jesus Christ's own church to get the wrong Bible, to get the wrong King going and try to erase your heritage in history. And God's people just stand by and let them do it. We think because we got a great big church and it's got a praise band, and it's got all these things going and we got this and we got that. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. God must be here. God doesn't need a Starbucks. <laughs> he doesn't need a praise band to give him praise. The praise comes in the hearts of believers through the word of God. You don't have the Word of God, you don't have praise, you just got a Christian rock band. So, in the true church today, the enemy of God of the true church has tried to erase it. The very truth that the true church of Christ was founded in Acts chapter 11. And, and up to about 120, 140 years ago, every Baptist on this church believed. Now the Bible says in Hosea 8.12 that those same great doctrines and teachings that we all stood for are now strange things. All because we removed the two great landmarks that will keep us on course and keep us from being deceived. Now Christianity today, Baptists. We have entered into the fields of the fatherless. We have lost the truth of God's Word. History will always repeat itself. Not learning a lesson of history will be the greatest mistake any pastor, any country, or any church will ever make. The only thing that men never learn from history is men never learn anything from history. When Israel went into the apostasy, they lost everything that they once had with God. And the Bible says that now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, that when God, God's people in the Old Testament, the landmark, went into apostasy and God was going to put them into captivity, it says back there in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, that God wrote Ichabod over the door. God has departed. And in the church of Jesus Christ, Ichabod's over the door. Revelation 3.20. It's just that simple. Romans chapter 2, verse 20 says, We have now instructors of the foolish, a teacher of babies, which has a form of knowledge. Colossians chapter 2 says, uh, in today in the New Testament church, Christianity is nothing but an empty shell, a phony, broken system of endless, meaningless programs that are all tied back to the world system. Through philosophy, Colossians 2, vain deceit, traditions of men, and the rudiments of the world. Oh, but we got a great church. Whoa, what's your church like? We got a restaurant. We got a Starbucks. We got a gym. We got a fitness center. We got an on staff psychologist. We got we got millions of dollars in property. We got a rock praise band. We got everything but the Bible. Ichabod. But as always, gotta love it. You'll find all down through history. Of the New Testament Church, the true landmark. As the main line slipped into apostasy, there always was that little no-name guy or gal who took the stand for Christ. Every place in history, the common, ordinary guy who never got his name up in lights, never wrote any books, never was a famous pastor, never was the toast of the Christian town, but he just dealed with truth and put the truth out. Just a little guy who held up the light in the darkness. Just a guy just like you. Just a mom just like you. Just like you young kids. At school, in your job, wherever you go. The world is in darkness and you're that little light. Most of you, many of you got into this church and got saved because somebody was a shining light in your dark world. And while all Christianity today and all the big churches are running like a big business, They don't call the pastor a pastor anymore. He's now a CEO. They run like a big business, and all of them are fighting in this town and every town to build a bigger building that looks better than the other person, to get all the amenities that you'll go to my church because we got a prettier doghouse. And everybody today in Christianity, everybody today in Christianity, all the churches, all the pastors, They all want to be the main chandelier in the ballroom of Christianity. I don't ever want this church to be the main chandelier in Christianity in Kansas City. I want this church to be a light bulb in the back porch. I want it to be a church where the lost, the broken, and the hurt, the ones that don't have any money, the ones that don't have anything, the ones that have addictions, the ones that have problems, the ones that struggle in their marriages, struggle in their own personal life. I want this to be a place for them. And I want you, God has given me you, the little guys, the, 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 the nobodies, much like myself, the nobodies, just to stand in the darkness of this old world and hold up the light that God's given you. That's all he's asked us to do. But you've got to have the landmark. You've got to have the landmark. Last week I told you that in the Old Testament, all God cared about was his wife, the nation of Israel. Now listen to me very carefully. All the events of history, the great strides of the Gentile nations, the great wars, the advancements of science, the great great discoveries, the great philosophers, the great writers of plays and music, the great architects, God cared absolutely nothing about. History writes volumes on them. God never mentions them. All God saw, all God could care about, and all God was focused on was the nation of Israel, his wife to him. And today, and you better get this, this is so far out of line that it's unbelievable, but it's so true. All Christ cares about is his bride. Look at Song of Solomon, particular chapter 2. He doesn't care who wins the final four next week. I got, I got a little 99-year-old lady over there that's praying that uh, Lola wins it, but they, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. I know that when a guy makes a, hits a home run, he'll walk around going, God's going. God doesn't care. Guy makes a touchdown, he'll go like, thank you, God, for giving me the speed to run past all these guys. God says, what is that? He, he break his knee or what's going on down there? God doesn't care. He doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl. He doesn't care who wins the World Series. He doesn't care what's going on around the world. He doesn't care about North Korea. He doesn't care about China. He doesn't care about, he doesn't care about uh, the things that are happening all around the world. That's the Father's plan. All Jesus, Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. All Jesus Christ cares about is you, His bride. He thinks about you all the time. He desires to speak with you all the time. He wants to have a relationship with you all the time. He wants you to take him wherever you go. Speak to him through your own spirit in every way and every way you can. He cares about only us. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, talks about right before the rapture of the church and how the bridegroom, the love of our lives, is looking through the lattice, at getting a glimpse of his bride. He can't wait to be with you. The difference between us and Christ is that He only has eyes on you and me. The difference is we have eyes on everything but Him. We love things. We love our cars. We love our houses. We love our boat. We love our money. We love our material possessions. I've seen in my ministry over all my life, I've seen kids that had great potential. I've seen young ladies that I thought could have really turned the world upside down for Christ. They had great potential. I've seen many of you here. But they never would go the distance. They never would get past a point in their life. They'd find some guy in their life and they'd give him everything. They'd give the intimacy that God wanted with them, they'd give it to him. They'd give all of themselves to him and give nothing to the Lord. Oh, they'd give a little bit. They'd come to church. They'd get discipled. But you see very clearly that there's coming a point in their life where they're not going any farther. They now have somebody in their life that they love more than they love God. Christ, in in Christ's eyes, they are everything to Him. In their eyes, Christ is a secondary thing. This guy right here is all I want. I've seen guys do the same thing. I've seen them have great potential. I've seen where I thought they could do some incredible things for the Lord, but they'll only go so far. They'll put a a stopgap in their walk with God because they'll find some gal or they'll find this or they'll find some job or they'll find something to them that means more than anything else in their life. And the most important thing in your life this morning ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you more than life itself. He loves you, wants to spend time with you. When he wants to talk with you, you're too busy. Texting all over the world. He wants to just spend time with you. You can't. You're on Facebook. You're telling everybody about your latest disease you got, social disease you got, bragging about it. You're out there telling about the party you went to last night, the vacation you're going to take. And all the time, he's just standing there waiting for you to talk to him, dying, looking at you, saying, why won't they put me in their life number one? That's a good question. Why won't we? Why won't we? because of things of this old world. The landmark. You see, when you know the landmark, then you know your heritage. When you know your heritage, you know your roots. And when you know your roots, you know the price that was paid. And you're not going to sell that to anybody. Many heroes in the Bible... If you don't get anything else out of this today, you're going to leave here today understanding why I am the way I am. Maybe this is more of a reference of revealing of who I am than it is for you. But there's many heroes in the Bible, men and women who form great role models for us to all follow. I mean, you' got Moses, you got Abraham, you got Joshua. You got David, you got Elijah, you got Micaiah, one of my favorites, Micaiah. He's not my list is endless. But to me, my favorite without exception is a man that there's really nothing mentioned about in the Bible hardly at all. And you would think that it would be strange to make this man your role model. But when you look at the context of the circumstances that he lived in. He's only mentioned one time in the Bible, nothing Nothing really stated about him anywhere else in the Bible. But he's a man that I want to be like. Most people, most Christians don't even know where he's at in the Bible. They don't even know that his name exists. That's a tragedy. He's found in Revelation chapter 2. And he's found right in the middle of the Pergamos church period, 325 to 500. He's found at a time when the church is going to hell quickly and they're getting hooked up and married to the world under Constantine. And he's about to face some of the greatest challenges as a Bible-believing man who loves God that anybody's ever going to face. And he's found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. And it says this, one little verse on him. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Satan's got a seat in this church now, see? And thou hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas, Antipas, was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. All we know about him. And yet, I can get out of that one verse four things about him. And these four things are important, but it's not the reason why he's my hero. It's not the reason that I am the way I am today. And maybe you'll better understand once you see the landmarks. The first thing that he says there that he never denied the faith. He stayed faithful. I appreciate that about him. I appreciate any man that's faithful to the Word of God, any woman, and I've got a bunch of them here. You're more faithful to the book than you are to anything else in his life, and I love you for that. The second thing is that he was was faithful in what he did. He was faithful in what God called him to do. You see, faithfulness is a great quality that runs throughout this church. My job is to take you younger men and women like we talked about and get involved in things and do. And, but I commit those things to other men who are faithful, who have been around, who know, and the whole system just teaches not only not to divide a faith, but teaches you to be faithful. Then the third thing I know about him is the fact that he was martyred. Now, that doesn't mean that I want to die as a martyr, but it does mean to me that something that we all had a dove, that he loved the book enough to die for it. Do you? And yet I'll say that it's, it's easy to die for the Lord. It's really hard to live for him. But he was a martyr. And the fourth thing we know about him is he was killed by the Roman Catholic Church for he stood his stand on the book because it says where Satan's seat is and where Satan dwelleth. And in 325 AD in Pergamus. that's only one place. Four great things about him. There would be great character qualities of anybody to follow, but that's not why I follow him. It's his name that says it all and speaks volumes about him and in the time period that he lives, Anubis. You know what Animus means? Anubis means against everything. This man stood against everything that wasn't right with God. That's what got him martyred. Animus means against everything. And in my day and age, when Bible Christianity again is being married to the world, let me ask you, what are you against? What are we against? For me, I'm against everything everything in this rotten mess called Christianity and everything it's about when it destroys people's lives in the Word of God. And someday I'll have to stand before God and I'll have to stand with Antipas. And I want to stand tall with him. I don't want to have to be afraid that when I finally get there, I realize that I missed the landmark. I missed my calling. I missed the greatest opportunity in my life to take my stand for God against the opposition. But the opposition was too great and I was too fearful. And I just put my tail between my leg like a little puppy dog. and went in a corner when all the Anipuses stood up and paid the price. I don't think he's a real character, but one of my favorite movies is the movie Spartacus with uh, Kirk Douglas, the, the old one, the real one. <laughs> all these fake things now, you know. I went to see the new Ten Commandment movie. What a joke. You know, they, miss, they just must might figure it out that once you have a classic, you're not going to improve on it. Amen. And one of the goofiest things is, back in the day when Cecil, Cecil, Cecil B. DeMills made that movie, he had 30,000 extras. When they showed those great mob scenes with millions of thousands of people, they were all real people. Today, we computer generate them. You know, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between a real person and a computer-generated like you can tell the difference between a real Christian and a phony. It's got to look close. But I, my favorite part of the movie is when they get defeated and they got the captives left. And this Roman emperor wants Spartacus, because Spartacus has been a thorn in his side. And they got him on the hillside, and he'll say, I'll let all of you live and won't kill you. If you don't tell me, I'm going to crucify you upside down all the way down the Appian Way out of the Roman city. I want to know who Spartacus is. Tell me who Spartacus is. I want Spartacus. And Kirk Douglas Spartacus, he's, he's got some honor. He's not going to let that happen. And he starts to stand up and one of his guys pulls him down. And over here to the right, some little guy gets up and he says, I'm Spartacus. He looks at him, and then this guy stands up, and he says, I'm Spartacus. And then this guy stands up. Pretty soon, 40 people are standing up saying, I'm Spartacus. Pretty soon, they're all standing up. And the real Spartacus is looking with tears running down his eyes. He made such an impact in their life that they were willing to take his stand. That's what Antipas has done for me. He made such an impact in my life that at the judgment seat of Christ, when the Lord says, will Antipas stand up? I'm going to stand up and yell, I'm Antipas. Standing with him. That's where it's at today. That's where it's at today. In the United States Navy, a captain of a ship, the man who walks that bridge has literally your life in his hands. You may be an able seaman, a chief petty officer, or even an officer of, in the officer corps, but he makes the decisions. And when he says, go to battle, you all go to battle. And he literally, by the decisions he makes, holds your life in his hands. And listen to me. The church that you go to and the pastor you submit yourself to has your millennial awards in his hands. What he teaches you, how he leads you, what he gives you, and what he takes from you. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Let no man take thy crown. You better get the right church with the right guy, with the right line with the right landmark, and you better get the right landmark, you better get the right pastor, you better get the right book, and you better get the right church. Because your millennial inheritance depends on it. Now there you have it. The landmarks. One for the Old Testament, one for the New Testament, that brings you completely through the Bible. And wraps everything that God is, everything is God doing, around two identities. In the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel. Everybody had to go through the Jew. In the New Testament, it's the church. Everybody has to go through the church. Where in the Old Testament, a Gentile had to go through the Jew to get salvation. In the New Testament, a Jew's got to go through the Gentile to get it. Just reversed. But it has to be the true line. It has to be off the old landmark. It has to have a heritage and roots that are fundamentally built all the way back to Antioch by a line and through a line in history that never lost sight of what God was doing and made things have changed, times have changed, and some things are different. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. That book is as good today as it was 500 years ago. Nothing about the Bible needs to be changed, but everything about us needs to be changed. That's the key. Let's pray for